Anything that's alive is intelligent. And everything is alive. Because everything is intelligence. So, what a conundrum. There ain't nothing that's not alive. Is everything alive? Is everything in consciousness alive per se? Well, first let's understand that everything is in consciousness. The physical universe, you could say, is in consciousness. It is the stuff of consciousness. It's oneness expressing as all things. Another way to put it is, it's being doing. What is being doing? Being is being. What is being being? Everything. So fundamentally, everything is consciousness. But within the bubble universe, uh, is everything alive? Does everything have its own sense of autonomous being? What about ideas? Thought constructs. We consider them to be something that come from us, something that is our own. Then you dig a little deeper and you realize, well, they're expressions of the collective unconscious, right? Uh, There are these sort of uh, primordial archetypal patterns that exist that we're expressing individually. And somehow those primordial patterns come from us, but they seem far more ancient than that. They almost seem, dare one say, timeless. And since they are informing the individual, since they are coming through the individual, kind of seems unfair to just assume that that we came first and gave birth to these collective patterns that then in turn give birth to and predict our behavior in large part. Perhaps when we realize that the physical universe, which is time, exists within and as consciousness, which is timelessness, uh, then there's no more problem. It's all happening right now simultaneously, but to look in any one direction from within the the picture of time uh, is to see just that, see a direction, see backward, see forward, see parallel. And so all of the above are simultaneously the case. But the root case is timelessness, is the the big picture itself. So we get that, right? All that wordplay, all the tricky language. Kind of get a picture of what's being said there. But the question is, if we put that aside, if we put the root aside, if we put us within consciousness, blah, blah, blah. Put it aside. Our idea is conscious in the same way or in a similar way to how we are conscious, to how animals are conscious, to how plants and minerals are they alive unto themselves. Well, it's interesting because even in wanting to do this podcast about this, I was sitting around with my coffee this morning, and the entire thing came to me in a flash. And uh, as they often do, often 
these podcasts play out in my head. They just kind of the way they should flow and what I would say. It's like, I, I guess you could say I'm writing these grand speeches while daydreaming or something, but really it's like the speeches are writing themselves and I'm just there. Uh, but there is an aliveness to them. It's not as though somebody is giving them to me. I'm not saying I'm channeling something. I'm not saying I'm getting downloaded or anything like that. Uh, it's as if these ideas are alive and it's almost as if they waft <laughs> through one's perceptual field and however articulate you are, however articulate one is, uh, is how well that idea is going to be perceived and come out. And then that is your relationship to the idea. I mean, that's not much different than meeting a person, is it? When you think about it, you meet a person with your blinders. You meet a person with your preconceived notions. You meet a person with your mood that day. Um, All the limitations of you go into meeting someone else for the first time. All the prejudices, um, all this psychological angst of, you know, maybe wanting to please strangers or maybe um, hating people, whatever it is, all of that that makes you you, that's how you're going to receive the person in front of you if you're not watching, if you're not observing carefully, if you're not truly listening to them and watching yourself as you're doing it. And let's face it, who's doing any of that, right? Come on. So, (laughs) uh, it's the same with these things we call ideas. These amorphous bits of sparks of formless awareness. Um, And in fact, when this podcast came fully fleshed out in my mind, when it came alive in me, I didn't want to even get up to jot it down. I didn't want to talk about it with my wife, Carol, because it felt like any way of articulating it would actually kill it. It would be over. Like I could jot down the bullet points and then try to remember the rest later, but that would kill it. Really, the only thing I could do is if I had had a microphone at that moment, I could maybe have taken dictation and spoken it out. And, you know, but even in that, it's the feeling is dead already of reliving. If it's not coming uh, from me at the moment, it's like trying to, well, we call this reciting, right? Um, But it it, it, is this, it's this unaliveness. The moment is in my head. The moment in which the idea is alive or in which the podcast plays out is gone the second I do try to articulate it. That's why I try not to write things out, generally. It just feels inauthentic to me. You know, scripted. Um, Nevertheless, I wanted to do a podcast about expressing ideas based on that little bit I played at the top of the show uh, from last week's episode. Um, Because that leaped out at me as something important to say and to discuss, which is, are ideas alive? And if if they're not alive, 
then why do they dress us up? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why do they dress us in a certain way? Why do they make us look a certain way, smell a certain way, sound a certain way um, when we're unconscious of who we are, when we're not in tune with who we are, when we are not fully fleshed out characters? The ideas become us. Have you noticed this? They sort of puppeteer us. And what I'm talking about is, well, you know, last season we talked a little bit about QAnon. So this is fresh in my mind to notice. Um, because I've looked at people tweeting online and Facebook and Twitter and all this, and they use the same language. They all say the same things. Um, even this one guy who, you know, sort of infamously tried to get into a Costco without a mask and then made a, I guess, an Instagram video of it or something. And, um, he was on a show called the majority report with Sam Cedar debating him on COVID-19 and, you know, the conspiracy crap. And everything he said is just what our now former friends wrote. And everything they wrote, if you recall that episode on um, cesspools and rabbit holes, uh, I'm talking about them. And, but everything that they wrote is all, uh, equally, like verbatim, what uh, I'm seeing being tweeted. And it's things like um, you ask them to cite their facts and they say, well, there's going to be two sets of facts, your facts and my facts, and you're going to believe what you believe and I believe what I believe. And they also say, when continued to be pressed, well, I actually don't need uh, to read anything anymore. It comes from within me. I meditate. Somehow it's gotten into meditation. I meditate and I get downloads or I get this information. Somehow the truth comes to me. I am the, the bearer of this now. So there need not be another. <laughs> Um, but they also have that slogan, uh, which is something like the three musketeers, like all for one and one for all, but it's like where one goes, we all go or something like that, where we all go, one goes, I don't know, whatever that is, but it's this, it's that group think mentality, but even that is actually a part of a hashtag, which is a call to arms when they see that they're, uh, being questioned or quote unquote attacked or whatever online. You put out the little hashtag for, uh, for with the letters and the numerical of, you know, where one goes, we all go. And it's a call to arms for all the bots <laughs> to come and, and like your posts and defend you and all of this. Um, but again, they, they all say the same. It's that groupthink dynamic. And yet they are, what are they groupthinking against? Against being a sheep. A follower, a group thinker, someone who's aligned with the mainstream. Um, but they're all so in their nonconformity, they're all conforming to each other. And you look at a lot of their photos, and they all have the same hair or very similar, the same outfits, the same interests a lot of the time. I mean, it's now a, it's a diverse ish mix of like, New Age meditations people and, you know, just outright right-wing Nazis at this point. 
So there's going to be some divergence, but I mean, two divergences, right? So what is this? What is it with, you know, just people who are stereotypes, people who are cliches, the hipster? I'm not like you. I, I listen to records, man. Yeah, so does everyone else who looks like you. And you can pretty much guess all of the interests of anyone who smells like patchouli oil, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's no... I'm not, you know, just panning these, these people over anyone else. It's no different than wearing a suit and tie to work. It's just, you know, instead of work, this is your, your full identity. <laughs> this is how you identify yourself in the world. Although a lot of people identify themselves as suit and tie people in the world. Um, and as a way to be distinct from those people. Oh, those people. Ugh. No, I'm more of a suit and tie kind of person. I'm mature. And all of that actually um, gets mirrored in the realm of public speaking. You can guess by what someone is wearing um, and usually be right. Some people break the trend, right? But usually, you know, you can guess roughly who's going to be talking about, like, psychedelics and who's going to be talking about uh, economics, and, you know, part of the ironic thing is if you want to be taken seriously in any of these uh, conspiratorial circles, you actually have to dress the opposite role. You have to be the whistleblower scientist. You have to be the person in the suit and tie who looks like establishment so that you can point your friends to it and go, look, that person looks serious and they're saying this stuff is true. Therefore, it's true. That's when you're a novice. That's before you graduate to, I'm just getting it downloaded to me. I don't actually need to cite anything. <laughs> so as a novice in all of this, when you think you're going to have to cite things to people before they laugh at you, and you realize, no, that ain't working. I'm just going to not cite anything, conveniently enough. That's the type of, I mean, in, in UFO world, which is sort of where I've been tromping around the last, I don't know, decade or so uh it's still the suit and tie person the suit and tie person giving a stuffy lecture on uh fantastical things as though it is serious logical and answered uh that is the person who's going to be taken seriously and of course we can't trust the government we can't trust the military unless they're a whistleblower or unless they're saying the things that we want to hear then we will promote them heavily because they are the proof you seek that this is all real. And while we're doing all of this, we seem to have amnesia about it. Like, we uh, rarely do, do you take a look around and go, oh, isn't it weird that we're all dressing like this and, and we're all doing this? Isn't this odd <laughs> that I'm nonconformist, but here I am conforming to a look, a scent, uh, a language, the very language that I speak? I mean, how many millions of people have to speak the same coded language before it's no longer a special little group anymore? So are ideas alive? Are they fitting us with a form to orate them, to speak them into existence in a way that they recognize <laughs> or in a way that we recognize that we, that we, you know, make an association. Okay. This type of thing is going to come from this person. 
Um, therefore, I will pay attention to them or not. Um, I will approach them with my preconceived notion uh, based on their look or their smell or the words they're using. Are ideas doing this to us, doing this with us, or is it really all just coming from us? Think about Star Wars. Here's a seeming non sequitur, but just think about the entire Star Wars saga. Uh, You've got the originally made three movies, which are now the in-between three, by George Lucas, and then what does he do? Years later, he goes back and he adds scenes to them that he claims... He wanted to be there anyway, but he just didn't have the technology to do them that way. But then you look at them, you just look at some of the background stuff that he added to them or the little details here and there, and it's not true. You can see it's not true. Famously, the Greedo shot first. Greedo didn't need to shoot first. Like There are these little edit changes, and then there's background characters that he puts in, and none of it really uh, adds to the ideas adds to the mythology, adds, enriches the story at all. The idea, uh, the story, has already been told as perfectly as possible. So adding to it is just gluttony in that sense. And then going and doing the prequels after that, where he claims, well, this was always the backstory. Well, that may partly be true. I mean, all of this might be partly true, but it's not wholly true. That all this was scripted out, midichlorians in the blood equal the force, or whatever. Um, no. <laughs> no. Uh, these things are added later. These things, uh, I mean, it's not a coincidence that that type of grounding the force in physical reality in a sort of science-based outlook happens to come at a time when, like, The X-Files was hugely popular. You know, that sort of grounding the mystical or the unexplainable, the mystery in materiality. Uh, He's he's aping the times at that point, whether he knows it or not. And then, of course, you get the next bunch of movies, which aren't George Lucas. And the ironic thing is that they're all under the umbrella of J.J. Abrams, who does deal well with these big issues, these big philosophical and archetypal and go down the list, all of these sort of mystery with a capital M issues. They seem to be on his mind quite a bit. And yet the middle movie of that last trilogy, which is the only one he didn't direct, uh, is actually the deepest, is actually, you know, the spiritual successor to the George Lucas Star Wars movies, in my view. And J.J. Abrams just sort of, or Disney made him, who knows, sort of take a dump on it (laughs) and, you know, undo a lot of what was done there uh, in terms of storytelling and even tone. It was like pushback on moving the, uh, the archetypal hero's journey story forward, really. It was a pushback on that. No, no, let's go back to the, you know, Star Wars that we all know and have seen a thousand times. Let's let's get back to that. Let's not burn the books. (laughs) Let's not 
tear down the Jedi Council. Let's, uh, no, no. <laughs> it's not all in you, kids. You have to be from a certain bloodline, you see? Um, but the story has been told. The idea is already out there, and then everything else, um, if it feels like a superfluous, dead articulation of something that was once living, it's because it is. Because, you see, the point is, to drive it home, I suppose... That uh, George Lucas added things to the already perfectly expressed ideas that he had. And it failed. It even failed those of us who went in with eyes agog, in love with Lucas, ready for the next thing, not at all cynical, not at all jaded. Failed why? Why did it fall flat? Because the ideas were already expressed perfectly at the time, for the time. Right? I mean, this is why these movies were a global phenomenon in the first place. If ideas weren't alive, then adding to them shouldn't uh, feel so deadening inside to us viewers, right? Especially the ones who grew up with the original movies and were completely psyched for their re-releases and for the prequels and even, yes, for the out-of-his-hands sequels. You can't recapture the magic. You can only evolve it. Don't you wish movies would understand this when they do sequels? Don't just do the same movie over and over again. You can't recapture it. You can only evolve it. You can only transform it organically. Which is what The Last Jedi did, that, that middle movie of the of the third, you know, J.J. Abrams trilogy. It's what that movie tried to do. But it was ultimately rebuked with the rise of Skywalker likely for commercial reasons because you got to give the fans what you think they want not what the story needs wah 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 am i right by the way i still liked those those movies overall <laughs> they just missed the point when it comes to the deep nerve that the original trilogy hit that sparked a hero's journey for a generation. I'm just saying. You know, no pressure, right? Now, for anyone who has uh, done gobs of psychedelics, uh, they may tell you, yeah, of course ideas are alive. You can take these psychedelics and go visit Idea World, where everything just happens at you uh, at lightning speed, where you can hear a sound and that sound comes marching out of your ear like a cartoon as a musical note to join a line of musical notes in a parade before your very eyes. Things like this. That's a first-hand experience, by the way. The one time I did uh, psychedelics. Well, one of two times. One was a control as a small amount of uh, mushrooms, a couple of caps of mushrooms to compare against two heaping handfuls of mushrooms. And the interesting thing about mushrooms, or one of the interesting things, I suppose, is the difference in the quality of experience with your eyes closed as with the open and walking around. Like eyes closed and not even meditating, just closing your eyes. You are plunged into these what seem like worlds and all of this. And with your eyes open and walking around, like, yeah, the room is changed, cartoonish things are happening, you look different, 
Um, er, you know, everything is growing things on it, <laughs> you know, all of this. Um, but at least in, in that sense, there is a world there. There is the architecture of like your doorway. It's just that it is, uh, covered in vine, at least for me. Um, this is different than shutting your eyes and being immersed, plunged into what feel like worlds of symbols and, you know, places with pyramids and things. Um, so are those alive? I mean, they certainly feel alive. They feel more alive than you at that moment. The whole thing of the psychedelic trip is if you don't go with the flow, if you don't allow it to happen, if you don't cave in egoically and become a tiny voice to the roaring, you know, this mouse voice in the background of this roaring lion, which is the experience, uh, you're just going to be scared out of your mind. You're going to be horrified trying to control and remain egoically intact. So you kind of have to go with the flow and, and let these ideas, let, let these so-called worlds uh, take over. That becomes you in some sense. So what is that? Are these not thought constructs? Are they alive? Are they actual places in another universe, in a multiverse, or in this universe on a far distant planet that you've just gotten sucked through some mental wormhole into? Or is that all just pseudoscience gobbledygook put on top of hallucinations? Doesn't do it any justice to say hallucinations. But it also doesn't do any justice to say you went anywhere. Or even died egoically. You don't die egoically. You become small. You witness in the background like a dream, kind of. Like a hyper-reality dream. It's not the big spiritually oneness thing, and it's not the egoic death thing, but I can see how they get confused for sure. If you haven't known the other, you would think this is it. And so, having known the other, which is timelessness, which is the full consciousness of being in which all of this is taking place, and non-being, which gives birth to being, and is constantly giving birth to being, that's the ever-present case of everything, uh, I can put on my suit and tie and expertly say that these thought forms, these formless awarenesses, and the psychedelic trip are not much, if any, different than ideas that we have when we're not on psychedelics. They're just happening in hyper-color. <laughs> they're, they're happening in 4D, uh, and they're happening really fast. But they are the aliveness of the interiority of the universe. You're conscious. Everything around you is conscious. We're all within consciousness. The universe at large is conscious. Is aware. Mother Earth is aware. Sun is aware. But the universe is also alive and aware and has an interiority. And that interiority is your interiority. 
you are that. And so if you don't have a true egoic death and um, a transition or a transformation into universal consciousness, into the consciousness at large, then what you're going to be left experiencing generally, as we all do, is being us, being the physical expression of the so-called outer universe, which is giving life to the interiority of the universe as broken up ideas one at a time. In fact, I will posit this. The reason that we're losing our attention, the reason, reason we have not just attention deficit disorders and, and that, I mean, that's, I think that is a, a side effect of what I'm about to say, but like the, the drive to lose our attention, to do things quicker, faster, to watch, uh, you know, t- television and movies and video games uh, that are edited at a hyper clip to get as much information as possible and absorb it as much as possible and all of that uh, as quickly as possible is our crying out for that universal consciousness to be that universal consciousness. We want it all and we want it now. To paraphrase the doors, I guess. Uh, but we don't want this one at a time drip, drip, drip of ideas. We want it all coming at us now. We want it all downloaded now. Who has time to cite sources? Hell, who has time to read sources? The problem is, this is not a good substitute. Separate divided ideas flickering at us at a high frame rate is not a substitute for oneness. It's the illusion of oneness. It's the illusion of one image playing out over all of these frames. Right? And when we treat ourselves that way, and therefore each other that way, going so fast in our interpretations, our our minds are trying to make sense of everything at such a quicker and quicker pace that there's very little room for meaning. If you can't sit still with a mystery, or mystery with a capital M, if you can't sit with it, it can't really communicate to you. You can't have an aha moment, really, because it's to the point where we're not figuring things out at a super clip. We're having pre-figured out. We're, ha- we're being spoon-fed things and going, yeah, 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 I already know that, I already know that. And so, therefore, it's easier to piece together what's being said because it's the same crap always being said over and over and over again. And this crap eventually gets into us and it becomes us and then we're the ones saying this crap over and over and over again. So yeah, you might as well not have sources. You're just on a regurgitation loop. And again, that loop, that lust for hyperspeed is all about being disconnected from universal consciousness, which is ours, which is us. Should we chew through the cocoon and fly? But if we don't, then we just 
cute little worm that we are, we uh, tack the HDTV, the, uh, the 4K, to the wall and pretend we watch butterflies on the 4K and you know, wish that were us. Pretend that is us. Tell ourselves that's us. And then tell everyone else we're already that. And then they go, well, wait a minute. No, no, we're not. We're sitting here in the cocoon. What are you even talking about? Well, you'll understand when you're ready. Right? That's another one they like to say. You'll understand when you're ready. Are we ever ready to hear this? That the more we yearn for oneness, the more we yearn for universal consciousness, the more we yearn for what we already are as a means to block it out so that we can actually remain ourselves because we fear the death it would take for such a change to occur. The chewing through the cocoon, the becoming a butterfly is the death of the caterpillar. Caterpillar doesn't want that. It just wants the wings right now, but it doesn't want to do that. Well, that's us, right? And so all of that is the deadening of ideas. It's the death of meaning. It's the hyper-fast, hyper-real murdering of ourselves. Slowly. 